Welcome to Season 4 of the Heart Podcast. We hope everyone had a restful summer break and are ready to engage in further exploration and learning about anti-racist teaching and higher education. Over the past several seasons, we've engaged in a multitude of conversations that have shed light on how anti-racist teaching can take on many forms and can exist in different spaces. Our guests also demonstrated how rich anti-racist innovation can exist right in our own backyard. That said, for this fourth season, we're shifting our theme to focus on grassroots and community engagement. We'll be speaking with creative and impactful organizations from across the country to uncover the inspiration behind their work and what they see for the future of local advocacy efforts. We're excited to engage in these conversations and we hope that you are too. Co-hosting with me is my advisor, colleague, and friend, Dr. Kenny Neenhauser, who is an associate professor at the University of Connecticut. His research focuses on higher education policy, undocumented and documented students, implementation of policies affecting minoritized students' college access, and diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education, among other areas. I'm so fortunate to have his perspective on this episode. Joining us for our conversation is Susie Jimenez, who is the director of Adelante Student Voices based in New York State, whose mission is to support undocumented students' journeys towards higher education while organizing around equal access and funds for all students, regardless of legal status. Susie received her master's in fine arts from La Universidad del Claustro de Sor Juana in Mexico City and moved back to the Hudson Valley to raise her daughter while also focusing on organizing around access to higher education for undocumented students. She actively works to combat the stigma behind undocumented students while bridging the gap between the Latinx community and the places they live. Also joining us is Reina Montoya, who is the founder and CEO of Aliento, based in Arizona. She is a social entrepreneur, educator, and dancer. Reina is a DACA recipient and an alumna of Arizona State University, Grand Canyon University, and Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Being born in Tijuana, Mexico, she migrated to Arizona in 2003, fleeing violence and seeking better opportunities. Despite the fear, anxiety, and stress of growing up undocumented in Arizona, she took a leap of faith and decided to create Aliento in 2016 after years of organizing and educating both at the local and national level. Thank you all so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom with us. Let's get started. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. So once again, thank you all so, so much for, for kicking us off on season four of the Heart Podcast. Muchísimas gracias por estar aquí, Reina, Susie, Kenny. And so I guess... I, I think a, a good place to start would be to talk about the, the root and the history of advocacy in your respective regions. I think even though we're all meeting virtually in this space today, what, where your work has been focused in has been, has been li literally the Punta Punta uh, in Arizona and in New York, which is, which is really awesome. And so just curious to know a little bit more about the, the, the specific history um, as far as like state history, perhaps of uh, anti-racist advocacy or immigrant advocacy in your respective regions and in particular what barriers were there and what barriers continue to exist maybe and so uh yeah to to kick us off with this question i wonder if we could start with uh, with reina could you kick us off please 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be sharing the space with all of you. Um, that's a very loaded question. I hope I have three days, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but I think that the Southwest has a very unique, a specific story. And I think we have to acknowledge that uh, that it was indigenous land, right? And that at one point it belonged uh, to Mexico. And then our families were situated across border lines. So I think that if we're talking about the history and the context, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, but I think it's important to see situated from a historical context and then zooming in a little bit more forward into the recent history of how federal and state has always been at these intersections of immigration and education and, and just rights of human beings relating to migrant patterns. So I would say that if we kind of think and do a little bit of a zoom in on, on recent immigration history, since 1986, there hasn't really been any type of positive immigration reform that is a relief um, that was before I was born, <laughs> so it's been recent contemporary history, but at the same time, when we're thinking about it, it has impacted multiple generations. So within that, in the early 90s, I mean, something that was called NAFTA, I don't want to get too much on the policy aspect, but I think it's important to get kind of context. Uh, there was a lot of migration and a lot of agreements between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. that really Im impacted the agricultural system. Arizona is a still very rural state that has a lot of agricultural community. So then we're starting to see that that families were not coming so much back and forth uh, before it was typically uh, a lot of um, self-identified as male that would that would come would work and then they would migrate back um, and then with NAFTA that really interrupted the current migration flows. So what happened is that we started seeing something that is called the funnel. So from California to uh, to Texas, they started funneling people to migrate to the desk to the Sonoran Desert. For those of you who are not familiar with the Sonoran Desert, we can get into 120 degree weather and a lot of casualties and deaths have happened. So that's 1990s. Fast forward, 9-11 happens. We know uh, what that did to our community and to provide a little bit of context of what it looked like here in the state of Arizona was that it started creating a lot of anti-immigrant sediments, a lot of copying, a lot of what happened out of California with Prop 187. We started seeing and now here seeing those tensions, right? Like we started seeing more immigrants coming in and the tensions came up from English only laws to taking a waiting state tuition to then culminating where many people know Arizona for is the show me your papers, Laura SB 1070. So while all that was happening, Typically, people just think about the show me your papers lab, but they don't think about it in the context that it was a decade of anti-immigrant, anti-Latinx, anti-people of color, uh, more specifically Latinx, I would say, based on our context in the Southwest, specifically in Arizona, uh, close to 90% of undocumented immigrants in Arizona are, are self-identified Latinx and close to 80% are actually Mexican. So I think that that's really important to provide the nuance that I think we're going to hear 
very different history from New York. Um, similarities, but also some diversity in terms of demographics and, and, and social political context. So that's been a little bit about the background. I think that within that, uh, 2010, we saw um, people pushing back. People were tired. We felt like there was nothing else that we could lose, so we needed to do something about it. And we started seeing a lot of immigrant youth specifically, and that's the generation that I come from, uh, to do something about it. We were like, well, if you are dehumanizing us, calling us all these awful rhetoric and the I word um, and very dehumanizing language, we're going to say that we're undocumented and, and we're going to be going to Senate offices, we're going to be going to rallies, we're going to be going everywhere we go to making sure that you know who we are. So. There's been a lot of advocacy. There's a lot of barriers that still remain in terms of the interconnection around uh, around education and immigration. Uh, we are the only state nationwide that uh, that has a ballot protected measure that prohibits undocumented students to pay in state tuition and prohibits us to have a state financial aid or any type of like local and state funded scholarships and thankfully after a lot of like advocacy that we've been doing at my organization with a lot of undocumented youth like that law impacted me when i was in high school it's been 15 years more than 15 years later it's been really beautiful to see that now like uh, arizona voters will have an opportunity to change that so there's been a lot, um, a lot of like ups and downs, but the way that I see it is like the way that Arizona once was an epicenter of hate towards immigrants that replicated its narrative and its policies across the United States. Like we can also be an epicenter of hope and resilience that is coming up from undocumented youth and their families. Really appreciate that, Reina. I, I, I love how you, especially when we talk about policy, I think it's it's interesting that we we didn't get to this point out of nowhere. There's been this momentum, there's, there's been this buildup, and I, I, I really appreciate the, the history that you provided, which spans decades back. And, and also like acknowledging that many of the, the policies and the anti-immigrant measures, especially in the Southwest, specifically in Arizona, which I'm very familiar with, they impact entire families. They impact parents. I remember SB 1070, uh, my dad works construction and so many of his workers went back to Mexico because it was just so scary. It was just such an uncertain time. And which Reina, you and I experienced probably graduating from high school and not having a clear path towards higher education because of crazy tuition rates that we were subjected to, a lack of financial aid and scholarship resources. But I, I love that you also ended on a positive note. You know, what, how did students and youth mobilize to try to create a better future, not only for themselves, but for the following generation? That way they don't have to endure the same challenges that, that, we, that we did. Um, very excited about the possibility as well for students to be eligible for uh, for in-state tuition as well. That's uh, definitely a light at the end of the tunnel that I think many of us are looking forward to. So, muchas gracias por eso, Reina. Susie, wanna, wanna pass it over to you to hear your thoughts. Sure, you're starting with like a, a good question to unpack all of this, Omar. So, our work here, well, my work with Adelantes focused on the access to higher education for undocumented students in particular. We started doing this work about six years ago here in New York didn't just start six years ago as you know it has to have the history and everything and i think what really moved us and started um 
why we all started doing this work was really that access to, towards higher education and going to college that we all experienced. Adelante wasn't funded by me, it was funded, founded by um, Gabriela Quintanilla, but I we've shared similar stories and thinking about New York State as a whole, I think we always get that image that it's very liberal, it's very like progressive, which it is in many ways, but we often forget that New York is not just New York City, but it's a whole other state with, while you leave New York City, it's rural, rural, it's agricultural, it's this vast landscape and every county and every district is so different just within one state and us so often forgetting about that and just kind of thinking of that image of what New York is supposed to be and our experiences as undocumented youth in its huge state that's supposed to be progressive is not. You know, it's so interesting. I think you, you touched on a couple elements that stood out to me, which are like, I think just misconceptions. I know for me regionally, just thinking about New York, it's just, it seems like another world. And on the surface, I hear about like the New York State Dream Act and these bountiful opportunities, which are, are wonderful and they open so many doors for students. But I think being on the ground, there's still so much work to be done. And I'm sure that's exactly how, how Reina feels as well. We've made so much progress, but there's still such a large subset of our communities that are still struggling, that are still in the shadows and, and still need assistance. They need support. But the, the both of you touched on elements that tie back to policy. And so I'd really love to hear Kenny's perspective Wonderful. Thank you so much, Omar, uh, for, for having me. Uh, it's great to, to, to be on a, another episode uh, of our podcast and, and to see this work uh, extending out uh, is, is, is phenomenal. And, and, and shout out to continuing to talk about the importance uh, of undocumented students, educational access, rights that they have. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful. So glad to glad to see that. Um, you know, it, it's uh, so Reina and, and, and Susie loved hearing your your perspectives and, and, and thoughts, and it had me think about how we haven't had comprehensive immigration reform for for decades. Uh, you know, as Reina mentioned, uh, you know those uh, immigration reforms were ones that my parents benefited from, who were formerly themselves undocumented. So it's been quite a number of years since we've had the monumental change that, that I know that many um, immigrant groups have really been working really hard to advocate for, because what we now encounter is really stark discriminatory educational policy landscapes that we see for our undocumented students because of the lack of being able to gain uh, citizenship and residency for those communities, right? So as Reina mentioned, right, we have um, undocumented students that cannot take advantage of any type of federal aid, Right. So Pell programs, uh, loan programs at the federal level, among others, is they're just sadly not not eligible for them. And then that leaves it up to states, right, to go ahead and make decisions around what higher education um, access will look like at the state level. Right. And when we're talking about like what policies primarily goes into two areas, right? It's around allowing our undocumented and, and or documented students from gaining in-state resident tuition rates or access to state financial aid programs. And, and we see a landscape here that, that is quite diverse around restrictive policies, like, we're, like what I know is talking about in Arizona, 
uh, among you know a handful of other states, Georgia and, and others I could name, to other states, right, who who have policies and are you know undocumented. Uh, youth advocacy groups have been leading this effort largely to be able to go ahead and um, fight for rights uh, for for these communities like in New York, Connecticut, California, Texas, among others, right, that allow for our undocumented students to receive both in-state resident tuition and state financial aid. Now, uh, you know, I, I say very quickly fight. That fight uh, has taken years in many states. Connecticut and, and New York are good examples of that, right? First, initially sort of passing in-state resident tuition policies, and then after much advocacy work, then gaining uh, state, uh, state aid for, for undocumented students in both, those, in both those cases. And a side note, uh, just a little footnote here, you know, it's important that we're talking about undocumented students. I'm very purposeful in talking about undocumented and documented youth because sometimes the public policy landscape at the state level could look very different for those two communities. Massachusetts, Ohio are just some examples of where that is different uh, for those communities. Now I'm going to answer your question, Omar, here. So, so, so apologies for that sort of little background infor information. But, you know, when, when Dana was talking and show me the papers, you know, in SB 1070, uh, and then thinking about New York, I've, I've done some research and, and published some of my work looking at those state public contacts and, and, and look to see how very different those, those state climates and those state policymaking environments are. So, for example, I'll just give you some, some examples uh, here very quickly. Um, so, so I worked on, on, on some research with, with Dr. Kevin Doherty and Dr. Blanca Vega uh, comparing sort of Texas and Arizona right around the time of SB 1070 and how they had different pathways to enacting uh, legislation or enacting policies that were favorable towards our undocumented students, Texas, right, versus Arizona, where it took a very different path, like, like Lena and you, Omar, were, were, were explaining. You know, and what are some of the things that we saw different, right, while they're located uh, geographically in a very similar sort of uh, context, right, Southwest, like, like Lena mentioned earlier, they had very different pathways, right? What we saw in Texas was there's a lot of Latinx people involved in the government as compared to Arizona, right? So you see a lot more Chicanos, you see a lot more of Mexican community sort of involved in local uh, policymaking uh, avenues. What did we see in Arizona? The referendum, right? As being that tool that was weaponized towards the undocumented community, right? Because the governor went ahead and vetoed the bill that did not allow that that was um, that was going to prohibit undocumented students from receiving in-state resident tuition. The governor who was a Democrat went ahead and then said no, Napolitano, right? But then what did they do? Then uh, the, the anti-immigrant groups went ahead and through a referendum passed policies, right? That were largely right. That were strictly anti-anti-immigrant, uh, right? So there we see like how it is that like local state policies really sort of are helping to shape this anti-immigrant or creating these greater barriers for, for, for educational access. In New York, one small thing, um, what has largely prevented uh, the New York state uh, from, from being able to pass more what, what people would deem to be uh, more uh, policies that are liberal, I wouldn't call them liberal, I would just call them whites, um, is the state Senate. The state Senate in New York State, right? We have a two, 
bicameral body like most states do. Right? We have the assembly, which is the lower body, and then the Senate, which is like the higher body. Um, that has been largely split al along party lines, very much Republican Democrats, sometimes switching sort of between both of those bodies, right? So that has largely stalled their being able to pass more sort of liberal or progressive policies. Um, and that is what prevented uh, New York State from being able to pass its financial aid policy years ago until they were finally able to go ahead and get more Democrats in the Senate to be able to pass this policy. So those are just some examples, right, of how it is that, that state policies or the state policymaking environments are largely very much shaping and influencing uh, what uh, the educational landscape looks like for, for undocumented youth in the U.S. Well, Jessica, that says, Kenny, I th thank you for s such a comprehensive overview of just how nuanced policy can be. And I really appreciate the distinction that you made as well between undocumented and documented as well, because I think folks that aren't very familiar with this topic, they tend to lump this community into one where the experiences are very different. And I dare say, even with documented students uh, like Reina and myself, we're, we're at a point now where, and Reina, I'm not sure if, if you've encountered this, you pro probably do. When, when I talk to young people now, some don't know what DACA is because they're just not eligible. And, you know, we were once kids. I, I like to say this, like we were once kids when we received DACA. And now those same recipients, some of them have kids, you know, the kids <laughs> are adults now and now they have kids and it's just such a different landscape. And it's just, it breaks my heart knowing that there are so many students across the nation that are graduating high school without a clear path forward. And I feel like we're back to square one. You know, it makes me look back and we're like, what, you know, we've made so many strides, we've made so much progress, but at the same time, como al mismo tiempo, como que no se siente. But I think a, a common element in, in the conversations and in the work that both of you are engaging in and have engaged in, Reina and Susie, are just the, the sheer amount of, of advocacy work that the both of you are currently engaged in and have engaged in. And I'm just curious to know what, uh, I'm not sure if there's one particular life situation or life events that led you to engage in this work. Reina, I know you are the, the founder and the CEO of Aliento, such an amazing organization that's, that's grown immensely and will continue to do so in the state of Arizona. And also Adelante Student Voices, very grassroots approach and doing amazing work in the state of New York, which I had the beautiful opportunity to participate in this summer. And so I'm just curious to know what, what led to the either for you, Reina, the creation of Aliento and for you, Susie, what life event perhaps led you to be involved in this movement and these advocacy efforts. And so, Susie, can we start with you? Sure. I think if you ask me, I don't I don't. I think I've been out of high school for like, I don't know, it's been years. I don't want to age myself now. But since I've been out of high school, I think if you would have asked my younger self if, if I would have ever been doing this kind of work or anything in education, I would have laughed so hard at you. And I've been like, no, because like I wanted to do art. And that was my focus and my passion. It, it still very much is, but um being undocumented and having being brought up in rural upstate New York where <laughs> um being one of the only being the only undocumented student in my graduating class and having to go to my counselor and 
self-certified, be like, I'm undocumented. I want to go to college. And my guidance counselor, that being 2007, being terrified for me and not having any answers or any guidance for me. And me in my head repeating, like, you're the guidance counselor. It says guidance on your office. And just having that whole experience really brought me to this work and being the person that I am and having to hate hearing the word no um, is really what kind of pushed me to keep going with Adelante. And now just being older and in 33 and exactly what you said, like I don't fit into any qualifications for DACA. Like I don't, my parents don't. So many of the students that I work with, with our, which are recent arrivals do not fit into this like cube, like cube that's placed on like what would you be qualified for and having to still hear that conversation now that it's been so many years and I personally that's what keeps me in this work because I don't if we can change so much about it and change policies that's where we need to go to not just at a state level but federal level so those conversations don't need to happen. And it's, yeah, if it's at small working with school districts and to building it larger, but that conversation and that feeling is something that I, that if I have the knowledge and the policies and advocacy work, then that's a conversation I would love for anyone to have to really avoid. So that's really keeps me going. So really appreciate your uh, your honesty and and also your your vulnerability Susie I, I think uh, that that really resonates uh, with with me as well I was I was the, the the first undocumented student that my counselor ever had to help and and given the the lack of, of knowledge and history that she had in helping uh, this community uh, that there was little help to be shared and to be had uh, unfortunately and I I uh, but but before I, I uh, give the floor to to, to Reina, um, I, I remember originally uh, upon graduating high school, my objective was to go straight to Arizona State University. I wanted to study astrophysics. I wanted to work at NASA. And I remember I was enrolled. I went to orientation. And I remember getting the tuition bill. And it was double. At that time, it was like 12000 and some change. And so for me, it was 24000 and I remember just my parents getting the bill and they're like, that loco? Como vamos a pagar esto? <laughs> it's impossible, you know? And just a no to, as you were alluding to, you know, just being told no. Um, so similar, like never thought I would be where I'm at right now engaging in this work, but I'm so proud and so happy to be where I am because it, I think it was because of those experiences that uh, made me fight, you know? Hemos luchado mucho para llegar donde estamos. So... Um, but yeah, Reina, really, really curious to hear uh, your thoughts and your story as well. I was taking a deep breath before unmuting myself as I was reflecting on your story and the story of Susie, because there's so many similarities, right? I think that there's something that happens to the human spirit when you constantly hear the messages that you don't belong that the answer continues to be no. And, and that's something that I didn't have the language or the vocabulary when I was graduating high school. And my parents, I'm first generation, 
a college graduate. My parents didn't graduate high school. Uh, and even though that they didn't have a formal education, they were my biggest cheerleaders. And I'm very, very grateful for their support, saying that no matter no matter what happens, if your dream is to go to college, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to figure it out. And I think for me, I always think about what would have happened for me if I would have not had mom and dad. And I know that many students don't have those strong support systems at home for many different reasons. And and then they deserve the same opportunities. I'm not saying that college is going to solve all, all our issues, right? And we know that higher education can become very complex as a first generation student, especially if you are BIPOC, yet it does open a lot of opportunities. And if if students uh, and if human beings see that as a pathway forward of enlightenment or foreseeing different opportunities, I feel that we as adults should be there to support them, not to create more barriers, but to be able to open up open more doors and create more pathways. So a lot of the circumstances that led me to founding Aliento, Aliento um, means to, translates to breath, right? But when you give Aliento to someone, it's like giving words of encouragement. And I come from a very specific place of grassroots organizing. I remember just like Susie, my, my counselors didn't even know what to do with me. They didn't even give me any guidance. They were just said like, well, your best luck is to like try to go to community college or I don't know what you're gonna do if you don't have the social security number. Well too bad. So I felt really frustrated around that process. And then also within uh, being able to be involved, understanding the nuances, right? Like I was really interested about like, why haven't we had a solution? Like, why can't, like, this is common sense. Every time that I meet even like the most conservative person, they're supporting me. Like the first time I came as an undocumented student was at a Republican fundraiser. I was not there giving money. I was there advocating for the DREAM Act, trying to talk to politicians. But I remember like seeing that the middle age, like the average age person was like in their 60s and they were white. And then yet like, when we were talking about solutions, like they wanted to support me. So I felt that there was this huge disconnect and digging into some of the policy that um, that Ken, uh, that Kenny was mentioning, I think that you can decouple policy and politics and how polarized this has happened. And the fact that the reason why we have a lot of barriers in the educational system is because Clinton, Bill Clinton decided to sign, uh, sign a document in 1996, a piece of legislation that became law that actually gave the states the power to decide whether we have in-state tuition or financial aid. Uh, so that's why we have all these very complex uh, policies at the state level, because it is the state's choice to decide whether to provide in-state tuition or not. And I really appreciate Susie's awareness as, as well about that, not because there's a democratic or a perception of a liberal or democratic state that means that they're going to be pro-immigrant. I mean, time after time, I continue to see that both parties, Democrats and Republicans, are guilty about this, and they have been enabling this behavior. I was sharing a little bit more about some of the successes with Aliento of advocating for institution. A lot of folks who were really against this were some of the progressive members that were Latino. <laughs> Right. And the reason that you won't hear this, uh, that's probably the story that the media won't cover. But the reality is that this wasn't going far enough and it wasn't good enough for them, which at the policy level, like I'm with them uh, at the values level, I'm with them. But at the end of the day, it's been more than 15 years since we have had any action. 
And for me, I think that there's a little bit of anger and there's a little bit of hope that keeps me in this work. I, I was a classroom teacher and I get to see that my students who were um, C students that were citizens had no problem thinking that they were going to go to college. But as soon as I would talk to my undocumented students or those students that did qualify for DACA, they were like, if I have a C, like I have no choice. And I, I felt really angry as an educator because my job as an educator is to provide pathways. I don't care your grade. If your if your dream is to go to college, like we're supposed to support you. It shouldn't be to the exceptional students that have um GPAs of 4.0s or even and beyond for them to have access to to higher education. So I think for for me about thinking about funding of Aliento, I never thought about creating an organization. It was more about that desire of like, why are we still in the same place? Why do we keep fighting for something that is gonna be failing? Like, I don't wanna hear comprehensive immigration reform because it's the same strategy over and over and that's the definition of insanity. So let's try something new. Let's make sure that we're accountable to community who's actually impacted and let's have impacted communities have a seat at the table, not only be storytellers, but strategies of our own lives. And let's make sure that we're investing in our healing, because as I said, something happens to the spirit when you continue to hear that you don't belong. And, and we forget sometimes our value and our worthiness and that we also deserve joy. So that's why we work at the intersections of education, mental health and the arts with the immigrant community too continue to be reminding our people that they're brilliant and that we not only are great storytellers, but we have the strategy on how to move forward and bring solutions that our community deserves and needs. You know, in, in learning about Aliento uh, Reina and, and Susie about Adelante, uh, it has me thinking about the, this, the central role that uh, community-based organizations can have in transforming educational systems. So, so I would love to hear a little bit about your perspectives of what your organizations are doing and what they're dreaming of doing in relation to making our educational systems more welcoming for our undocumented uh, and documented students. Sure, I can start that one off. Reina, going off what you said exactly, like um, in working with all the students that we've worked with. And a little bit back on the past question of like sitting at that guidance office and hearing no and from our graduation this year and seeing that we've helped 100 students out was like wow if i could just show that guidance counselor like you said no like one no is like a 100 kids right now that we've helped like go through this program like and i wish that like sometimes teachers and administration could not see the great and actually see the students completely and fully and get to know their experiences through storytelling or anything because they show up every day to school and I think we know there's so much going on but the focus is that it's the SATs the tests and everything and just trying to get school administrators to see so much when so much of it has been like taught this is the way and since that's how it was when I went to school still or this is these are the rules or these are exactly how you have to fill out the application because there's so many state laws and even PTAs and boards of education and everything <laughs> along the way and all these barriers that make it complex and are set up for like so many of us to fail and just wishing that like 
it's not just wishing, but uh, like Adelante having to do that work for um, our school districts to see everything that students have can really offer. And it's like, they're struggling, but why are they struggling? Because of that access that they don't have full access to all the like ENL classes that they need that they don't have. It's like, and it's just going back and asking those questions and doing a lot of the one-on-ones and trying to find ways that like the support systems that each student needs and seeing where the school district kind of working more with the school district to really, so this doesn't happen repetitively. So that's why I say like sometimes the change is like a small change is that it can just be a phone call. But sometimes from that one small change, you're like, all right, this phone call is getting repetitive. Like now there's something that we like and just, um, yeah. So it's sometimes a small change that is needed and then just going back and building off that. So I think for us, we take a multidimensional approach in our work with schools specifically. We think about what is the immediate need that students need and how can we help them navigate through the college application process. So we do a lot of programming. Uh, we actually work in the K-20 continuum. So that means with elementary all the way to uh, college students. So at the lower grade levels, it's a lot about social emotional learning. So we have after school programs in schools where we equip students to uh, to really support them navigate all of these emotions that are related to immigration-based trauma and how they continue to build resilience and healthy coping, coping skills at the um, uh, at the higher grade levels, like high school and college, we have a paid fellowship where we support students uh, to go through a leadership development program, building that social capital. We know that social capital for first generation students, specifically for students that come from mixed immigration status families, it's so critical. Uh, so we we do that. We build uh, social capital. We equip them on how to advocate for themselves in schools and also at the legislature, at school boards, and we have this method of like paying it forward. So how do they build teams and student clubs within their schools do not be the only ones that they're getting the support, right? I think for me, I mentioned that I felt pretty, pretty lucky to have the opportunities to have a full ride, but it shouldn't be that case. It shouldn't be up to luck and it shouldn't be up to um, few ones. Like I don't want to be the only one and, and we're instilling this value to our students. How do you make sure that you're not the only one, but how are we paying it forward for other students? So that's one approach, student work. The other approach is working with educators, counselors through task force. We have a partnership with the largest high school school district of Arizona to be able to provide like a task force about, it's called Stockholm FAFSA for undocumented talk and mixed status family. So like what happens when then there's these opportunities that would look very different for the populations that we're working with. So we equipped counselors, uh, we provide like a mandatory professional development training uh, to figure it out, how to, how to have these conversations with students, how to provide that additional support. As a classroom teacher myself uh, in prior years, uh, we are so overworked, you all. Like educators are overworked and we don't get compensated. So sometimes even educators want to support, but then might not know how or they might not have the time. So that's where we come in as Aliento to be able to build that capacity and streamline it and say like, you don't have to do it alone. You have partners in us that 
are doing all this work in the day in and day out. We know policy, how it impacts students directly and families, and this is how we can bridge that gap and that understanding. Um, and last but not least, we really are intentional about working with our school partners and school districts and leaders about how do they provide professional development trainings at schools and understand their culture that they have, and is these cultures that are inclusive and uplifting of all students, including our undocumented and DACA and mixed immigration status students, because oftentimes um, a lot of educational professionals see immigration as a political issue. They don't see it as a human issue, and our kiddos are there regardless if they decide to talk about it or not. So how do we provide those tools and skill sets so then they can have the appropriate language to create and foster inclusive and spaces of that are welcoming and that students feel that they belong in in the places uh, where they're supposed to be learning, right? So beautiful, y'all. I really commend you both and want to thank you both just for the real multifaceted approaches that you're both taking to engage in this work. I heard students, I heard educators, I'm sure parents are involved as well. Just so, so many people that are involved in this process. And there's, again, like going back to policy, right? There's so much nuance. There's so much to be done. And I, I believe it was you, Reina, that mentioned that there's there's anger, but hope as well, you know, and engaging in this work. And I heard a lot of hope just, you know, looking into the future and just want to thank the three of you for for allowing the audience and, and myself as well to learn more about this work, the, these efforts. And also in the description of this podcast, I'll be including more information about Aliento and about Adelante Student Voices. If our audience wants to learn more about these organizations, if they want to donate, because this work not only is it not easy, it is not free either. And so we need a lot of support, a lot of funding to make these efforts happen and continue and continue to grow. So yeah, on behalf of the Office for Diversity and Inclusion and the University of Connecticut, just wanna thank the three of you so, so much for providing your time, extending your wisdom, your vulnerability as well. It's such a beautiful conversation. And yeah, any final thoughts that y'all would like to share with our audience? I just wanna first say, that I'm very grateful for this space. I'm grateful to learn more about Adelante. Susie, thank you for the work that you're doing. For you, Kenny and Omar, for bringing light to this very important issue. And then for you, we are all coming from different places. So it's more an invitation to join us in the journey of becoming an ally. And I want to be very clear that this is a journey, not a destination. And you have that invitation open and we don't need you to be an expert. We just need you to care. Yeah, thanks so much for 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 having uh, you know this topic. You know, it's such an important topic, Omar. So 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 thank you for 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 continuing to shed light on on importance. And and, and like I first said before, you know, the, these are rights, educational rights that we're talking about, human rights that we're talking about for for our community members, right? And it's so important uh, to continue to be talking about these conversations and to be talking about these discriminatory public policies, right? That are very much thwarting the, the educational pathways of our, of our youth um, and, and that it shouldn't be. Um, so, so it's important that we have the great work of Ariento and Adelante Student Voices that are supporting our undocumented communities in ways that they deserve to be supported, right? To be advocating for them, advocating with them, for them, uh, to be able to really sort of shed light on, on the importance of this of this topic and 
and and giving them that hope, right? To use a word that Omar you've mentioned a couple of times and Reina has as well. You know, it's it's really important, right? And to get other community members involved in this movement, I think is is is, is important that we continue to do that. Thank you, Omar and Kenny and Reina for all the work. And I'll close out quick. And um, you're totally right. It's it's all about el corazón and heart at the end of it all. So. Join us for our next episode, which will air on Friday, September 30th, focused on the role of dialogue in community organizing and community partnerships. We'll have the honor of hosting faculty and students from UConn, in addition to a fantastic local organization from the New England area. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.